Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. And as you're turning, uh, let me also say that the children ages 4 to 6 are free to go to children's worship training. Uh, they'll return at 1035, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. If you'd like to keep your children in the congregation uh, for the sermon, that is fine. And uh, we uh, look forward uh, to gathering now around the Word of God uh, written uh, and to hear it preached. As you're turning, let me also say that uh, uh, this was marked a spe- this last week marched a, marked a special week. Uh, my last uh, scheduled trip to go to Orlando to Reformation Bible College was completed, and uh, I received a gift from the class. You know, when students when they smile, that's a big deal uh, at the end of a semester. Um, when they clap, that's really good. But when they interrupt and say, "We have a gift for you," then You hold your breath because you don't know what's coming. (laughs) Out of the bag came a T-shirt, perfectly sized, and uh, as my son later demonstrated, intimately intimately tweetable uh, in the social media. There was a picture of the Dutch theologian Louis Burkhoff, from whom they had no small amount of reading due. And on uh, on the T-shirt it said, Burkhoff is my homeboy. Now, you need to understand, I'm over 50, and that meant I wasn't quite sure what that word really implied. And so I quickly, uh, after thanking them, looked up on the Urban Dictionary online, and it's okay. It means he's my friend, and uh, he has my back. Well, this morning we come to the second chapter of Hebrews, the second chapter of this great epistle to the Hebrews. And the teaching in the first eight verses is given for your spiritual blessing and health. He's not just uh, filling up time or filling up paper. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews has a number of points here that he wants to make that we might take them to heart in life. He tells us, first of all, that we need to pay attention, that we need to pay attention to God and what he says to us. And he also tells us that in the Old Testament... God warned us about responsibilities and serious consequences if we don't live up to them. And in the New Testament, there also is a required response, but it's to the gospel given to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that has reached our ears and our hearts and lives. And then he points forward to the end times, to the world to come, and says that the Son in the world to come is our great hope and our great Savior. Not angels, not even being Jewish, but being in Christ, the ascended and resurrected Lord. Here now from Hebrews chapter 2, the first eight verses. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders, and various miracles, 
and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you were mindful of him, or the son of man, that you came for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Let us pray. O our Father and our God, we thank you for this inspired portion of your word. And we ask that you might light it up in our hearts and lives. We pray that you would stir up within us an interest and an attention to the gospel and a glory and a zeal for your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Few characters that I have ever met have made such a profound impression upon me as that great theologian of Warner Brothers, Foghorn Leghorn. My children uh, have been subjected to Foghorn Leghorn, even as I had in my own childhood. As a matter of fact, it's not too much to say that almost everything I know about parenting or speaking to children at a very important moment has come from Foghorn Leghorn. Now, boy, now, boy, listen to me. Even my daughter has had to hear those words in cadence upon some occasions. Sit up and pay attention now. And that's what the Lord says to us through this text this morning. Now, pay attention. Sit up and listen. Listen to what the Lord has said to his people As we enter the second chapter in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit has led the inspired author to apply that same application to each and every one of us. Did not our Lord say, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free? What better reason for us to sit up and pay attention to what Jesus is saying to his church? The author of the epistle to the Hebrews first tells us that we need to pay attention to God and take him to heart. Look at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, the Lord speaks to us in a number of different ways. He communicates, he reveals himself through the created order, through the realm of creation, to each and every human being on the face of the earth. Here the apostle or the writer is echoing the opening of his book when he said long ago at many times in many ways God spoke. And the first act of speaking by God is through the created order that we might understand everything else that he says to us through others. Oh, we wake up in the morning. And we see that the heavens declare the glory of God as we open the blinds and the light comes streaming in. 
We're creatures made in His image. We cannot but see the footprints and fingerprints of God all around us in the created order. We wake up and shave and clean and fix. And what stares back at us in the mirror? But eyes, eyes that bear witness to us of a soul made in the image of God. Oh, God speaks of His divine power, of His eternal nature through the created order, the Apostle tells us. And in this general way, God speaks to you each and every day. He's speaking to you now. As you look around the congregation, as you think about the person to your right and left and the one in front of you, and as you sing and you wonder, who is that behind me with such a good voice? All are made in the image of God. And they declare something to you of the great Creator. But God has also spoken to us in the realm of Scripture. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, the author says. There he's clearly echoing that first opening verse. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God has spoken by the prophets of old. And he has spoken to us finally now in this gospel dispensation through his son. He's spoken through them to us that we might hear and grasp and understand what he thinks, what he's like, what he's done for us, and what good and great offers in the covenant of grace he makes to us. Oh, we can put our fingers in our ears and pay no attention? Not at all. If God has spoken, then His people must listen. And if we will not listen, if we turn the other way from Him, then a doubt, a doubt arises as we drift away. You know, when you're getting out of a boat, you have to be careful where you put your foot. I remember all too well a time that a certain Boy Scout went into a canoe for his first journey. Oh, I can remember being out in the middle of the lake and, and the instructor showed me how to turn that, uh, that paddle right at the end so you didn't uh, just go in circles but could make it from one side to the other. I was even taught that great old song. Do you, maybe you've heard it. Uh, My paddle's clean and bright, shining with silver, follow the wild goose flight, dip, dip, and swing. And it's so wonderful to see that water just fall off the end of the paddle as, as you go exactly where you want to. But you know there's danger in a canoe. There's danger at the beginning of this blissful experience and at the end because, you see, you have to get in the boat and then you have to get out of it. And if you're not careful when you put one foot down into the boat, then the foot on the dock and the foot on the boat begin to separate. And you receive a baptism of humiliation with a much larger quantity of water than we saw this morning. Oh, what fun, sailing from one end of the world to the other. You remember that climactic dialogue in the first Star Wars movie? Almost there, almost there. Stay on target, stay on target. It's so easy to drift. It's so hard to stay on target. But the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is adamant. He's adamant that we must not drift away from the faith. 
We must hook our ears. We must turn and listen to what God has said to us through His prophets of old and through His Son. It's our Christian duty to pay attention and to not drift away from Him. And the aspired author also here wants us to know that we must pay attention to the gospel. And here is where his argument gets a little complex. In verse 2 we read, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Pay attention to the gospel, he here is telling us. You see, his argument is building. And he decides to again go back to the comparative theme that he plowed in chapter 1, where he compared the excellency of angels to the superiority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Oh, yes, God has spoken to us in many different ways in the past by the prophets. But now, through his Son, the definitive word comes. And? Angels are wonderful, and God has said all sorts of fine things about them. But to which one of the angels did he ever say, Today I have begotten thee. Come, I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The author continues this comparison here at the beginning of the second chapter. And what he does is speaks in terms of an assumption that they're all making that is not specified here in this text. You see, his Jewish audience was very clear, very familiar about the Mosaic law and its giving on Sinai. And they believed that the character played by Charleston Heston had directly received the Ten Commandments on on tablets of stone from God. But the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic Law code with all of the twists and turns of regulation that uh, governed the religious life and the civil life of Israel, uh, detailing economic systems and penalties and garments and vestments and casseroles that could and could not be eaten in the home. All of this, all of this they believed had come by the ministry of angels that God had used his angels in the transmission of this detailed code. Now, where did they get this idea? Well, in Deuteronomy 33, the opening begins by pointing to ten thousands of holy ones, code language for angels, that had accompanied God in meeting Moses on Mount Sinai. And then Stephen, on the occasion of his stoning in Acts 7 and 53, said that the Mosaic law was delivered to us by angels. And the Apostle Paul, in Galatians 3 and verse 19, said the same thing by implication. Angels gave the Mosaic code in the Old Testament. Angels gave the gospel in that Old Testament shadowy form of the Mosaic code law. But in the New Testament, we hear the gospel from the mouth and in the face and life of the Son of God incarnate, who is King and Lord of all. Now in this, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is telling us that the Mosaic law was reliable. 
It was sure and firm and true because it came to us by the ministry of God's messengers, angels. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he says. Now that word which came through angels, that whole Mosaic code, provided the religious and cultural life of Israel. Why was she called a peculiar people? Because she's a little different from all the other nations around her. Her relationship with God is what made her a little peculiar, a little funny. She wouldn't eat shrimp. There was a certain day of the week on which she wouldn't go out in labor, but rather only gathered for worship. She wouldn't mix Milk and meat together in the same casserole, that would transform even Thanksgiving and Christmas feasts into something a little odd. She followed the gold standard. She had cities of refuge. She had a certain set of penal code that required that incorrigible children be stoned, starting with a rock thrown by their parents. That was very strange in the time of the Old Testament. Her worship was different. Her values were different. Her economy was different because her God was different than the surrounding idols of the pagan nations. In each of these areas, her life was shaped and forged by Mosaic regulation. And God used this law code to decorate to outfit, to equip and prepare her for the coming of the Son of God incarnate, the Savior of all the world. You know, I bet if I visited some of your homes that you already have a Christmas tree hanging up, some of you. Thanksgiving is gone, and I I bet before the turkey soup was all consumed. Some were decking the boughs with holly, and the trees were out, and the lights were up, and the tinsel and balls were beginning to be placed. If you haven't done that yet, I'm sure it will happen this week. Just be ready. And the nation of Israel was just like that. She was getting ready, not just for the celebration of God's Son coming into the world, but for His actual arrival, for His arrival in Bethlehem. She was being prepared and forged and shaped as a nation that would be different than all the rest so that He might come and do all of His Father's heavenly will. These Old Testament mosaic regulations provided solid ground on which her entire civilization was founded and developed. All that she was was shaped upon this rock and it proved durable, durable for 1,600 years until our Lord came and blessed us with His presence. Oh, the mosaic law was reliable Who could doubt that, given it had come by the instrumentality of angels? And in the next breath, the author says, it was also righteous. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Crimes and punishments were specified, both religious and civil If you murdered your neighbor, there was no doubt what recompense was to be exacted. If you stole your neighbor's money or your neighbor's donkey 
or your neighbor's wife. There were particular provisions that should be carried out by the people of God. Everything in daily life was dealt with in principle with one way or another. And maximal penalties were specified. And judges empowered to execute them or some lesser just sentence were put in place. In the realm of religion, little was left to doubt. The categories of disobedience and guilt and uncleanness were all developed in the mind and heart of the people of God that they might appreciate the Son. Repentance, reconciliation, and restoration were all held out to them in shadowy form so that when it came in the blazing noonday sun of Jesus Christ our Lord, they could understand and embrace and accept Him as the Savior of their souls. Oh, the priesthood. The tabernacle, the sacrificial system were all specified. Even obedience in what was worn and what was eaten was not left to chance. This law was righteous. Some men lost their lives as they rode roughshod over its provisions and they eventually caught up with them. Many more learned through the spiritual humiliation involved in daily transgressing the law and daily going back to God for forgiveness in principle through its provisions. Oh, preparation for the gospel in its full and final form was made in Israel through the old covenant Mosaic law. And the author's point to us couldn't be any clearer. His argument rings in our ears If the old covenant was great, and if it was full of glorious danger on every hand, then how can an even greater new covenant gospel not be more seriously taken in our lives? You see, the New Testament gospel also requires us and binds us in heart and life. Verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect Such a great salvation. You see, the salvation held out under the old dispensation was in shadows and forms. You weren't saved by the blood of bulls and goats, but you sure were taught that you needed the forgiveness of sins which alone could come by the shedding of blood. Those provisions pointed to Christ and to His church. They taught the old covenant believers of their need of a Savior who was to come and that their trust should be in Him because they so much needed God's forgiveness. And when He came, the gospel which was better was fully revealed. The former had come by angels, but the new, the definitive, the final punctiliar form comes by the Son of God eternal. If angels and the message they brought were fearsome, then we'd have to be mad to ignore this one, this gospel, this salvation and its fulfillment. How shall we escape without it? The old law showed us how to approach God and that we must. The new gospel shows us how to know God through His Son and to secure salvation true and sure. We must approach Him only by Jesus My friend, this long argument is one which is so important for your soul because you see your life hangs in the balance here in whether you drift away 
and neglect so great a salvation or not. Ignore his word. Ignore his son. And 10,000 angels will not be a help to you. They will but pronounce your condemnation to your face. Neglect the blood of Jesus. Neglect the son's sacrifice on Calvary. And there is no hope in this world or in the next. But how great is the gift. How glorious and generous are the provisions. As Jesus Christ our Lord announces to us and holds out to us forgiveness full and free, clearly seen in His sacrifice on Calvary. How great His love for you is. How great a love from His heavenly Father, He announces. God loves you and cares for you so much that He has sent His Son to live and die for your blessing and benefit. How can you turn away from that good news? How can you do anything but run and trust the Son? And you know it's true. The author tells us several ways we know it's true. The New Testament gospel reaches us, he says. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord and it was attested to us. By those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed to each according to his will. He says, Jesus has announced this gospel to you. The Son of God has spoken in language that we can understand and take to heart. And his disciples were witnesses. They saw his life and his miracles and his triumph in death and over death. And God himself, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit make it clear that this gospel is true and have revealed its power to you through the signs which were done and the miracles and wonders and gifts which God alone could give. There is no lack of evidence of the gospel. It demands a verdict from you personally and sincerely in your heart and life. You must see Him. You must feel your need of Him. And you must come and follow Him who alone is King and Lord of all. And if that's not enough, the author gives you one more reason to listen and to care. He says, pay attention to the glory to come. If the glory which has already come is not enough. Oh, there were angels. And there was the very Son of God. And you shall yet see Him face to face. Angels will not rule in the world to come. Verse 5, he says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. You see, this present world is their domain. This present world is the place in which they exercise their administration. Angels affect the nations. Angels shape and are used by God in moving and molding the course of history. They touch your lives. Does not this same author tell us that we occasionally entertain angels unawares? 
Oh, God is good. And he is good to us through that order of beings which are spiritual and which we do not all the time see who have never turned their face away from him, who have lived in total obedience and service to him. They do the will of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in this world, they exercise such delegated authority. But in the world to come, it's different. The world to come is not their beat. The world to come will be ruled by the Son of God incarnate who comes in power and glory with all His angels with Him. Just as the cultural mandate was given to the first Adam in the garden, so too it is given to the last Adam in the new heavens and in the new earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now we don't see things the way they will be The author tells us that in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, that is in Psalm 8 by David, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with honor and glory, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Oh, things are not yet the way they will be, but they will indeed be that way. For a little while, he appears lower than he really is in the secret of his person. But now, no more. He is seen for who He is, the Son of God incarnate. He is seen for what He has done to come and take away the sins of the world. Every eye, every eye will see Him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But the question this morning that you face is not, will you confess Him? Will you bow to Him? But will you do so now? That day will come. That day will come where everyone shall bless Him. But by then it is too late. It is by force of arms. By force of power in position. By honor and glory seen that you must confess. But now, you should confess Him as Lord and Savior of all, even of your life. Confess your need. Confess your trust. And you will find Him a Savior of men. Let us pray.